0: So I lived uh, in Palo Alto on the street where all the venture capitalists were. And uh, so I had breakfast, lunch, and dinner with all of them for two years before starting the company. And what I learned from them is there were three reasons that companies fail. One is the uh, uncontrollable ego of the founder. One is a lack of money, that's self-serving advice. And the third thing is, um, do you want to run the company or do you want it to be successful? And so then when I went to raise money, I said, I am dedicated to having a successful company even if I don't run it, I said to them. And they loved that, they ate it up. And uh, I'm here to raise money, so I'm not gonna have that problem. And, oh, I'm sorry, I missed missed one. Focus, lack of focus. Uh, That was probably our biggest problem. So focus lack of money, uncontrollable ego of the founder who wants to run everything, those are poison.
1: Welcome back to Austinpreneur for a conversation with Dr. Bob Metcalf and the CEO and founder of Capital Factory, Joshua Bayer. This episode was recorded in front of a live audience of Longhorn Startup students from the University of Texas. In 1973, Bob Metcalf invented Ethernet at the Palo Alto Research Center, known as PARC, in 1979, Metcalf spun out a park to commercialize Ethernet through a startup called 3Com. At 3Com, Metcalf first proposed what's now known as Metcalf's Law in order to sell more, you guessed it, Ethernet. After a decade as a media publisher, then another as a venture capitalist, Dr. Metcalf moved to Austin to become professor of innovation at the University of Texas. Among many programs he supported on campus, Dr. Metcalf started Longhorn Startup with Josh Bayer in 2011, which is the same class for which this episode was recorded. A decade after joining UT, he retired from the university and shortly after received the top prize for computer scientists, the Turing Award, earlier this year. Through his time in Austin, Dr. Metcalf has stated his goal as to make Austin a better Silicon Valley, and it's hard to argue against his progress in doing just that. Welcome to Austinpreneur, our show about the stories that made Austin, Texas, a global hub for startups. The show is produced by Capital Factory and hosted by me, Nick Spiller. As a reminder, by joining Capital Factory, you can plug into the ecosystem where the stories on the show were set. Learn more about us at capitalfactory.com. Hello entrepreneurs and everyone who loves them. Thanks for listening to this startup Focus podcast. And if you want even more amazing startup content, then make plans to attend South by Southwest 24, which runs March 8th through 15th here in Austin, Texas. Much of the amazing startup content occurs in the appropriately named Startup Track, which runs Saturday, March 9th through Monday, March 11th. Another can't-miss experience is a South by Southwest pitch competition, which brings together 60 of the world's top startups on Saturday, March 9th, and Sunday, March 10th. Be at the Startup Track, South by Southwest Pitch, or any of the thousands and thousands of other events that make March Magic in Austin so special, South by Southwest is one of the planet's top destinations to discover new ideas, new business models, new markets, new innovators, and new talent, as well as make some incredible new connections. Always find the most information about South by Southwest at www.sxsw.com. I got
2: to know Bob when he moved here to work at UT Austin uh, and, uh, and he moved here to Austin. and again, we got to go teach a class together. And so Bob, um, I guess to start, um, tell me I, 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 you know, tell our students, um, your, I, I'd love because I gave, I gave them just the briefest bit of the introduction to your kind of your career. Can you tell us like your, your theory about your 10year careers and what those different careers have been? to lead you up to today?
0: I'm starting my sixth career. I'm off to a slow start. Uh, But my theory is um, change jobs every 10 years. Uh, Try to stay on the steep part of the learning curve. Because down here is boring and up here is boring, but the interesting part is right here. And so I'm starting on a new learning curve. Um, I got a job at MIT as a computational engineer because I want to write code. And the, um, but I've had trouble getting started. Two things stopped me. Uh, One was I got long COVID, which knocked me out for a couple of months. And then I, that went away. And then I won the Turing Award, which is a lot like having COVID. No, the Turing Award comes with lots of obligations to go visit people and give talks and be dignified and so I've been doing that, but that's beginning to, I still have to do India. Uh, I'm trying to decide what to do about China. Um, uh, and then then I'll start coding. My, first, my I have a two page model of a geothermal well and I'm modeling and it's sitting there waiting for me to return and pick it up again. So it's, there's a lot of different kinds of startups and uh, Uh, You know, there's three kinds of um, venture capital. I was a VC for 10 years. Those who focus on the market, those who focus on the team, those who focus on the technology. Of course, the best ones focus on all three. Uh, And uh, it's very hard to pick winners. I went into VC thinking that because I had been involved in a very successful company, I could help entrepreneurs with their companies. And what I learned over 10 years is helping is not the right model. Choosing is the right model. You don't, so I, toward the end of my tenure there, I was uh, focused on which companies to invest in rather than the conceit that I was going to help them once uh, I invested in them. I'm not sure I'm recommending this, I'll just describe it. I, I f- fall in love with the entrepreneurs. So, and then I have confidence that if they encounter an obstacle, they'll be s- persistent and smart and they'll go around it. And then second, I like to play with the technology, and I like to fall in love with that. And uh, my weakness is I don't, I don't focus that much on the markets, which are obviously very important. So the, the team is my answer. Uh, it should be a team. There's two models uh, of entrepreneurship. One is you, the entrepreneur needs to be able to do everything. The other model is the entrepreneur needs to how to build a team that knows how to do everything, and I subscribe to the latter. Uh, building teams rather than you know, it's a waste of a it's a waste of an engineer that, to know about accounting. But there are some entrepreneurs who say, "Wait a minute! One of the things that you need to run a company is accounting. I better learn that." No, that's that's the wrong answer.
2: So, uh, real quickly though, and I agree with everything you said, but in addition to that your first company three com and ethernet cards was a big They That was a big benefit to the market. Like you were part of an exploding market of PCs and of, of networks. Right. Yeah. So,
0: yeah. So my company three com helped build the internet. It was founded in 1979. Uh, and then we, uh, we sold a lot of ethernet, which is a networking technology for uh, the plumbing of the internet. Uh, I just learned this recently. I hadn't paid attention to it. At, in 1999, the company's market cap, inflation adjusted hit 70 billion dollars. Wow, that's a decacorn. but only for about 11 days because in 1979 the market went like this and the company went up to 70 billion uh, inflation adjusted and then came right back down again. So it, it eventually sold to HP for $2.7 billion. <laughs> uh, after spinning off um, Palm, which was uh, like uh, an iPhone before there was an iPhone, and uh, we spun it off, the company which, I wasn't there actually, so I shouldn't say we, uh, my, comp- my former company accidentally acquired this, this uh, handheld iPhone-ish sort of thing. That division of the company then became worth more than the company. And no one could figure out what to do with that. And uh, so then the company spun it off. And then the market cap goes down when you spin off. The market cap goes over here. And that's so it eventually sold for 2.7 billion. The coincidence is that uh, when I started the company, I had $27,000 net worth. It says the two seven, 27, 27000 is similar to the $2.7 billion that it sold for. So, um, but that's a ridiculous comparison. The, I'm gonna now t- tell you the secret of success not only in entrepreneur but in everything else too. It's one word, listening. So that, that's what I look for, people who listen. And by the way, to listen you have to uh, stop talking. And uh, so that's number one. And one of the things I regret about my own career is I eventually became head of sales and marketing from engineering through a PhD, boop, head of sales and marketing of a startup, and it worked out. A bad decision, you've heard of a bad decision with a good outcome, that's an example. Shoving an engineer out to do sales and marketing is not a good decision, but it worked out in my case that one time, and I had to learn really quickly. Okay, I can enumerate my careers, that might be interesting. But uh, we established quite early that every July we would have a company picnic. And I would go to it and all the employees were there and we'd eat hot dogs and then we'd go home. So one one July i go to the picnic and there's 2,000 people there. And many of them were children. Who would eventually want to go to school, college, maybe? And then it hit me that those meetings we had on Monday to to direct the company would eventually affect the lives of these kids. So that brought me meaning to your question, which is, "Oh, I better be, I better stop screwing around on Monday morning because look at all this responsibility that uh, that we had as we grew, and then we had twelve thousand employees, so we had to stop having." the uh, July party because you can't do a party with 12,000 people I used to have a weekly all company meeting and uh, one day our head of HR came to me and said Bob we we can't do that anymore Uh, we have four buildings and and, um, you're going to have to have four all company meetings so every Friday I would go do an all company meeting in building A then I would go to building B and then building C and so on It's the role of companies to serve customers, but you also have employees, and you have shareholders, and you have suppliers. You have a long list of people who invest their lives in this entity. And so especially if you're in a leadership position in in a company like that, you're responsible for those relationships and uh, need to handle them carefully. So uh, my first career, I went to school for 23 years that doesn't count so then I became an engineer scientist and went to Xerox research in Palo Alto and that's where I invented Ethernet and then I left there to start my company was there for 13 years in a variety of positions and then I left that to become a journalist and I published a magazine called InfoWorld for eight years and then I left that to become a venture capitalist for 10 years at Polaris Ventures and Boston, and then I became a professor here for 12, 12 years, uh, with my partner here, and now I've uh, I'm done with that. I'm an emeritus professor at UT now, and by the way, nobody knows what emeritus means. It doesn't mean free football tickets. It doesn't mean free parking. So you know those those are meaningful things, which it does not mean. Uh, so. Th- th- so now I'm becoming a computational engineer, so that's my will be my, or is my sixth career.
2: Which of those was most personally rewarding? Uh,
0: I think the 3Com experience, just the sheer scale of it. And inside of 3Com, I got to do, I was head of sales and marketing, I was chairman of the board, I was head of strategy, I ran the workstation division, I ran the hardware division. Um, in the end, my last year, I was corp- head of corporate marketing. Uh, of a billion-dollar company, my job was to go around <laughs> country by country and explain what our logo looked like. And so the 3Com subsidiary in France was not allowed to have a different logo. And they would argue, yes, but French people are different, so we need, we need to call the company Troacom. I said, well, that's not the name of the company. So I did that for a year. I was a marketing vice president, and that was my job. Yeah, so within the three com experience, it was great variety. I learned a lot. Yes, sir.
2: Why did you decide to come teach at UT after
0: your experience at venture capitalists? And- so we lived in Boston, and my wife was an ultra triathlete, and she, and I had been a VC. What's that? Super hardcore, like hundred miles. And uh, she got tired of working out in the winter in Boston, so she said, "You've been a VC for ten years." It's time to go to a warm place. So we, I, I made up a talk, sharing the lessons of the internet in solving energy. And I gave the talk 50 times. But each time I gave it, I tried to meet the, v, the um, dean of engineering. And as I met all these deans of engineering, I pitched them that they needed a, a, a professor of innovation in engineering. And five deans, thought that was a good idea. And one of them was the engineering dean at the University of Texas. So we, Robin and I had been by coastal she's from Los Angeles, I'm from New York, and uh, Texas was different. So our main reason for coming here is entrepreneurial activity, um, it's warm, comparatively, and uh, we, we got an offer, that matters. You can't come here without an offer. and. Uh, and it worked out perfectly. And so for 12 years, my, uh, I viewed my job as helping uh, Austin become a better Silicon Valley. And then some people would say, we don't wanna be a better Silicon Valley. <laughs> some <laughs> might say
2: we already are. <laughs> uh,
0: I didn't mean better than Silicon Valley. I meant the Silicon Valley model is a good model, and we want to be better at it than we are. And that. Um, and they said, keep Austin weird. And I said, Austin, you do not want to have a weird contest with San Francisco.
3: Um, so I know that you mentioned listening is a pretty pivotal skill. Uh, besides that, what would you say would be some skills that we can try and pick up while we're in college to uh, make our make ourselves as successful as possible
0: a big thing is you gotta uh, like people and I didn't always like people but my life changed when I started just liking people being interested in them uh, so learn to like people and if you're a grouchy want to work by yourself uh, in a lab you probably don't want to be an entrepreneur uh, you got to like people, so I'd put that at the top. Did, did
2: that just happen, or did you like make a
0: conscious effort? I, I made a like conscious effort. In, in 1979 or-ish, something fired, and I went from excessively judgmental, highly selective, I went to liking people, yeah. and it was a, a very valuable thing.
2: What did you like about Nick when you met him?
0: My first week at UT, uh, Nick shows up, and he wants to start a company and he had one and it had this silly name and, and everything. And, and so I was learning to be a professor and here's a student showing up and, and the next thing that happened is his mother showed up in my office and I didn't know whether that was normal that you, you would send your mother to go beat up on a professor but she was my kind of person. She was a software sales executive and so I mean, this is my kind of person, so we hit it right off. But she gave me clear instructions about how to handle her son and, and uh, toward success. Uh, that was at the beginning, and it's worked out pretty well. Your,
2: your casual name list of all the people you've had dinner with is all the most brilliant people in the world.
0: The quality of the people that you associate with is all important. So you, you need to be careful not to affiliate with bad people. So if somebody's... This happens so often, you're interviewing somebody and they start telling you how shitty their previous employers were, one after another. And, and pretty soon you go, so I'm the next asshole. <laughs> Is that what you're saying? So during interviews, if you, if you see dishonesty or you know, uh, something, yeah, dishonesty basically, then you get out of there. You want to associate with quality people. And quality is two dimensions, some of it is ethical, but some of it is skills. That's a different case. So when you're starting a company, it's very hard to attract people. Why, why wanna, you, it's just you, why would I want to join your company? And uh, so it, I made some compromises in the, in the early selection of people because I had to take the people who were willing to work at my company and that wasn't the all-star list, mostly fraternity brothers. But then when the company started powering off, they didn't have the skills necessary to succeed. So one by one, let's say five of them, I had to let them go.
2: I, I tell that story of I, hire, I hired all my friends, then I had to fire all my friends. Right. And it's not, not but you're, there's I'm a reason a for it. Of them.
0: And the reason is you can't attract the people that you should be attracting. So by degrees, you begin to compromise. But the quality of the people you affiliate with is is all important. So if, you're, if you have two opportunities and one is with some shady characters and the other one is from not shady characters, take the not shady ones because long-term that'll uh, benefit
2: you. One of the uses of university to of, of this environment, right, is, is surrounding yourself with a whole bunch of really smart people that
0: are going to go off to go do a whole bunch of things. So 3Com was founded by a half-dozen MIT Sigma News. I was a Sigma Nu. Yeah. And uh, uh, my immediate co-founder, Greg Shaw, was a Sigma Nu. And, and then uh, Howie Charney, our uh, head of manufacturing, was uh, MIT Sigma Nu. And it went on like that. Uh, our head of engineering, I played squash with. So he wasn't a Sigma Nu, but I, uh, Larry Birnbaum, I played squash with. Um, so those networks, so that I guess that's another... Another answer to an earlier question, building a company is building networks, and I was just enumerating a network that I had built as an undergraduate, and then when I needed people, I knew them, but I knew who the good ones were, and I knew what they were good at, and so I recruited, but then it was Ken who was a mistake. No, that's wrong. For the eight months that he was with the company, he was great. And then he he ran off, uh, he ran out of runway. So he got to keep the stock that he had, uh, had uh, what's the word? Vested. So he made plenty of money and eventually went public, but he wasn't our head of marketing anymore because he and I saw that he didn't have the skill set or the inclination or the, uh, the right texture to be the head of marketing of this company selling Ethernet cards. It was just a mismatch. His wife was his wife, was a, a very high-end executive recruiter. He brought her to the exit interview <laughs> to negotiate with me about how much stock he was going to get to keep. And uh, that would be scary. Um, yeah, that, that was, that's a little bit like Nick sending his mother in. Yeah. 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 What's
2: What's an example of like what are the, the e- when e- when you were selling Ethernet cards, you were as you described in your in your story that we all watched. You were selling the future, right? You had seen the future at Xerox Park, and you were able to come back in time to everybody else and be like, "Well, I know what it's going to look like once everybody has a computer. <laughs> they're going to want to plug them all together, and they're going to want to do all this stuff." And so, you know, you're able to bring that back. But you were kind of selling the future, and it was something. What? What? Who's selling the future right now? Like, what's? What do you think is? What's the? What are the Ethernet cards of today?
0: Well, is AI, generative AI. A, AI an, an is Ethernet card selling of today? the
2: future. You don't have enough, to just get more. It's not working, you need more.
0: Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens to AI. If the normal cycle occurs, it's peaking right about now. And so it's, something, it's going to run out of steam somehow. In past... In 1968, my undergraduate thesis advisor was a man named Marvin Minsky, who was one of the founders of artificial intelligence. And he, by the way, he didn't think I was smart enough to do uh, artificial intelligence, so he sent me into networking, which worked out in the end. Um, so thanks to thanks Marvin. Marvin. But since '68, which is a long time ago, AI has come and gone, come and gone, three or four times. Kinda like VR. Like what? Virtual reality. Like well, VR is down now, but yeah, it comes up. It's, but it'll come back. Yeah. My analysis is AI in each of those cases ran out of data. Data, 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 didn't I just hear that? Data, 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 yeah. Well, AI ran out of data uh, those previous times, but I don't think it's gonna run out of data now because we have the internet now and we didn't have the internet then. So one can be more optimistic and hopeful about the prospects for the various kinds of AI. I looked at all the websites of all the departments of computing and engineering, computer engineering and looked at the faculties of each of them page after page and I looked at what their interests were every last one of them had machine learning in their resume and that, that can't last so there'll be, there'll be some um,
2: settling down. So to put it in perspective though just because it must, something might be peaking and might crash um, you know, it might reset. The internet did this, yeah. right? And for me, that you know, I don't know if you remember it the same way I do. You have a bigger perspective, but for me, that was nineteen ninety nine, two thousand, right? And it was I was graduating from college, and right now with generative AI, like like it was like was like I'm going to make a website and sell anything on it, you know, like, um, and uh, and then and then everything crashed, right? But it wasn't that the internet was a bad idea. It wasn't that the Internet was fake. And by the it way, it's not true that
0: everything crashed. Well, uh, there was a big Google, crash. for example, did not crash.
2: Right, a lot crashed. And my business at the time was email marketing. Email marketing in 2000, boom, Like, I mean, online marketing actually did really well. But overall, it, you know, a whole bunch of this crashed. And everyone said, oh, I told you so. They said, oh, no one's ever going to buy a car over the Internet. No one's ever going to stop reading newspapers. No one's ever going to buy dog food. No one's ever going to get their groceries over the Internet. Oh, my God, never, right? right? I mean, that, that was what... Everybody said in 2000 when it crashed, and of course now 20 years later, we do all of those things. Like you know, like and so, so the, you know, but, even though it did go up and crash, it doesn't actually mean it was all fake.
0: So the bigger point there has to do with timing. Yeah, timing is everything. point the point So the three coms internet products were aimed at personal computers and we were founded in 79. The trouble was, in 1979, there were no personal computers. Apple had been founded in 76, and they, so they had shipped a pitiful number of PCs. IBM had yet to announce it. So here's poor 3Com with PC product, only the customers didn't have PCs. So timing was everything. It's like you're building products for people
2: who live in outer space. Like, well, nobody actually lives in outer space right now. Like, someday they will. but like
0: So we had to figure out how to stay alive long enough for it to come back. And it did come back, and we prospered. And we did figure out how to, we sold our products to mini computer users as an interim step. And then workstations, uh, and then I remember our competitors drove us out of the workstation business into this new business called personal computers. And it went boom. And there's nothing more fun to be being a company that's going boom. Uh, although you can overdo it. On some quarters, we overdid it. You, you grow too fast and the wheels come off your car. And You can't support your customers and you'll run out of product. And so uh, you don't want to either under or over forecast because both of them don't feel good. But anyway, we figured out how to stay alive. One of the things we figured out is we were trying to sell our products to people uh, who were used to buying from IBM, which was the dominant computer company. And we figured out, the phrase we developed in sales meetings, we're gonna have to wait for that person to die. because they're never gonna buy our products. So we have to wait for their successor to come and buy our products. So what we did instead was not try to sell to them, but sell uh, through, retail, through computer retail, which was brand new. Uh, and am um, glad you didn't say you tried to kill them. <laughs> God, I wish I'd thought of that. <laughs> so we went around them. So you, you know there's that famous poem where the, the 600 ride into the valley of death. You don't have to do that. You can ride around the side. There's no obligation to ride into the valley of death, and what a stupid idea that is. So you need to be agile.
4: So I hear like a lot of successful entrepreneurs are described as assholes, right? So you see as assholes. Oh
0: yes, well, like
4: Steve Jobs, right? We had
2: Bill Gurley here two weeks ago and watched Super Pumped, where I, I they, they interview everybody and it yeah. starts with "Are you an asshole?"
4: Yeah. <coughs> I, I binged it last night. Uh, so. Do my chances of being a successful entrepreneur go up if I'm an asshole?
0: No, they go down.
4: But why are so many successful ones?
0: They succeed despite being assholes. Being an asshole doesn't help. They overcome it. So like Steve Jobs, uh, one of my mentors, 10 years younger than me, didn't finish college, one of my mentors. He could be an asshole. And... uh, I figured out the reason he had extremely high standards, and those standards eventually led to the largest company in the world. And he was defending those standards against mediocrity. And he was a package deal. He, for example, one of his standards he, uh, he said, do not, to his engineers, he said, do not design any personal computers that have fans in them don't want fans, because fans make noise and they annoy our customers, and I want our customers to have a quiet office. So the engineers for several generations of Apple products made uh, computers without fans. But the processors kept getting bigger and bigger and hotter and hotter, and the amount of memory came So the engineers are struggling to produce apples that didn't have fans. But they found a fan that didn't make any noise and so they designed it in but they carefully never called it a fan they called it a banana so they shipped these products with bananas in them but the no fan thing is an example of Steve having very high standards his conception was the customer needs a quiet office and we're gonna have it and so don't Put any fans in our computers,
2: and, and that persists. I, mean, if, I don't know if, you've re, if you, know, if any of you are Apple, big Apple fans, but you look through their products. They still man, m- many of the products that where other products in their category have fans, they they are able to design them without fans still, and you know still able to pull that off.
4: Ethernet is in literally every single device today, right? So when you first had the idea and you wanted to start integrating that into all the different ports and stuff, right? What would you go and tell the companies like? say I'm a company that's designing a computer and then you want to be like, okay, here's, we want to, we have this idea, Ethernet, put it in the computer. What would it, what were those meetings like to like, just go talk to the people and get Ethernet into their devices?
0: I'm going to tell you a secret and it's a brilliant secret. IBM attacked Ethernet. So we'd go to sell it and the poor customers used to buying IBM and here's these other people trying to sell them Ethernet. So it was ugly, head-to-head competition. Almost everybody but IBM backed Ethernet, so it had that. That gave pause to the customers. So it wasn't clear for a long time whether the IBM token ring, as it was called, would win or whether Ethernet would win. It wasn't clear. So the people who made the workstations, the PCs, didn't know what network to put in their machines. So instead they put an option slot so you could put a card in their machine and you could put an Ethernet card or you could put a token ring card. Well, guess who sold Ethernet cards? We did. So their inability to predict which the winner was going to be caused them to put option slots instead so for 10 years 3Com sold cards. Now, eventually, they put the Ethernet onto the motherboard and eliminated the cards. But for 10 years and billions of dollars later, they, people were just buying cards because the, the uh, PC makers couldn't make up their mind which one was going to win. That's true. I mean, that happened. Yeah, Sun Microsystems, we were their supplier. You've never heard of them. Uh, they Pioneers in the workstation business, they chose us to provide Ethernet to them. And uh, they were a big customer, we sold hundreds per month. Later we would sell millions per month, but this was hundreds. And uh, they called us up one day and they said, we're putting ethernet on the motherboard. So whatever you do, don't invest in a new product for us, the next gen product for us, cause we're not gonna buy it. We're gonna put it on the motherboard. It was very nice of them to do that. So we took the engineering resources there and we put them on this new thing called the IBM PC. And then we sold millions per month of the IBM PC cards. at a hundred bucks a card, that adds up.
1: Yeah.
3: What do you think separates high-performing people who just kind of climb through the corporate ladder versus those who kind of make a name for themselves? And how do you think people can try and make that jump? Because what, what often happens, <coughs> and something that I've noticed in McCombs, is that like, it's kind of just churning out employee after employee. And I just wonder, like, where's the skill gap where those people who are at that level that are kind of jumping to doing their own thing, making a name for themselves, versus just being a very, very successful faceless employee? Did, did I explain that properly?
0: What are you worried about?
3: I guess like what are the ways to kind of separate yourself and make yourself top talent and jump from just being a good employee to someone who can make a name for themselves
0: okay so i I went to all the best schools and I have all the degrees. Uh, I then worked for Xerox Corporation for eight years and got performance reviews every year and got raises and so I guess I was a well-performing employee uh, and then uh, since I was working in Palo Alto uh, it was natural for me to leave and start a company because of the culture. I guess what I'm partially answering is there's a culture answer in addition to the personal choices answer and so I made the transition from well-behaved army member or as Steve Jobs Steve, Steve used to say it's much more fun to be a pirate than to join the Navy. So I was in the Navy, and then one day I issued, I wrote a letter of a resignation. Actually, seven months' notice I gave Xerox. And I left without knowing what I was going to do. But everyone around me was starting companies, so it, was, it felt safe. Like if my company failed, I could always go back to Xerox. Xerox might take me back or Apple might take me. Who knows? So I'm not answering your question, but that happened. I was, so I'm an example of somebody who was a good, I finished college. Steve dropped out his sophomore year. I finished undergraduate and I finished grad school. Uh, I was surrounded by people like Gates and Jobs and so on who never, (laughs) who didn't finish college. But in my own family, I went to Xerox for eight years before starting my company my wife worked for sunset magazine for eight years before starting her consulting company my daughter worked for facebook for eight years before becoming a venture capitalist and my son worked at apple for eight years before uh, he's now in a software startup so we it's a coincidence uh, had eight years of post-grad school by going to work Uh, but there is a hazard that once you get into the you know the the path, and it's, it's a good life. I mean, being a, a highly paid consultant is not a. Oh, well, it's exhausting. But uh, other than that, but there is a hazard. You, oh yeah, occasionally people say, "I'm going to drop out of school now." That's one thing that Nick's mother wanted me to do. Be sure he didn't drop out of school, to start a company. He can drop drop out of school to start a company, and they say, "Yeah, but I'll I'll come back later." That never happens. Nobody ever comes back. So when you leave college or that, you know, the stream of uh, higher education, it's extremely unlikely, never say never, but it's extremely unlikely you'll ever come back. So you need to consider that. Don't fool yourself to think that you're going to come back. Because my um, machine learning algorithm indicates that that is a bad bet. One thing I never did was. Uh, proactively choose you know like perform a study, develop the four alternatives choose this one, go do that, no, nothing like that in each of the cases there was sort of a natural transition Um, a place like for example I was uh, I just left Xerox and I got a call from a friend of mine at MIT who owned a publishing company and he said that InfoWorld Magazine needs a publisher. Why don't you do that? I had no publishing background, but I took it because it sounded interesting. <clears throat> By the way, I, the tit- we discussed the title. Uh, I wanted to be CEO and publisher of InfoWorld. I like the word publisher. And he said, you don't want to be publisher. Publisher is the head of sales. You'll spend your whole life on Madison Avenue groveling before ad buyers. Don't do that. I said, yeah, but I wanna be publisher. So he said, okay. So he made me CEO and publisher. And guess what? I spent the next several years on Madison Avenue sucking up to ad buyers who all they wanted to know was how many readers do you have. And, and uh, it was, he was right. I really shouldn't have been uh, the, the publisher. Publisher was the code word for head of sales of a magazine. That's not a universal term. Oh, So back to your question. I sort of fell into them. Uh, Each one. Is that true? Yeah, the the Start3Com one was just Silicon Valley. That's what you do. You leave your company and you start a company. And the... uh, 13 years later, I left the company to, to become a journalist, writing a column. I wrote a column for eight years. I had a million readers every Monday morning, a million people. That was
2: probably a lot harder then. What's that? That was, that was probably harder to have a million readers then without the internet than now.
0: Right, these were print readers. So they either subscribed or they read somebody else's copy. And it was a mil- worldwide, 90 countries and so every Thursday night I wrote 605 words that would they would be reading in in print on Monday morning and that was uh, scary and I got in trouble I made predictions that didn't come true and annoyed a lot of people but it was harder now it's now a million doesn't seem that many but back in the print days on the other hand I was publisher which meant I was selling ads a pay, I sold a page for 30, 30 grand. And my favorite sale was a spread 51 times. We were published weekly 51 times a year. So when I went out selling, I was looking for a spread 51 times. Oh, four color. Four color spread 51 times. That's a multi million multimillion dollar sale. And that was fun to do.
4: So when starting a new venture, are there any like considerations? Because I think when you start something new, like a new job, you have to sacrifice stability. And does, does that have any effects on like you and your family?
0: You mean like divorce and stuff uh, like yeah, that? Yeah, that's
4: something to consider. But definitely, like, you'll probably be making less money at the beginning stages when you start a new
3: venture. Is that, is that ever a case of something bring up with your wife? or?
0: Uh, my current wife and I have been married for 44 years. But there was another one, another wife before that, who um, what we did is we would work, we, we engineers, would work until we were tired, then we'd go home, go to sleep. And then we wouldn't have alarm clocks, we would just wake up and go to work. And so we had disjoint social lives with the rest of everybody, including our then wife, wives in my case. So that was very painful. Uh, so there are some personal sacrifices that people make either on purpose or inadvertently. Um, it's best to avoid those. Well sometimes you run into folks who just have unrealistic expectations like they want to run the company. That's a key one. And uh, and that's a motivation for starting a company is because you want to run something and God bless you. But if you're talking to me about investing in your company, well, that's different. Um, So investors generally don't want to hear that you uh, want to run the company. They want to hear that you want the company to be successful. And if that takes you not running it, as happened to me, so I was CEO and major shareholder for a couple of years before we recruited my adult supervision, Bill, And he became the CEO and it worked out. And I didn't storm out the door that day, although I was tempted. Uh, I became head of sales and marketing. So we, we, um, so there's a key, there's a key. So I'm talking to somebody and they say, what I want more than anything else in the world is to run this company. I'm tired of being told what to do by a boss. And what I think of, I'm sorry, when you start a company, you have a hundred bosses. You don't, you don't eliminate bosses by starting a company. Every customer is a boss. Your employees are bosses. Everybody's a boss. So that's a really bad reason to start a company is because you don't want to have a boss. It's, it doesn't happen that way.
2: Next week, when we have Jason Cohen here, uh, we'll t- he'll talk about his story. And he started out as the founder and CEO of WP Engine. They then since have recruited another CEO, Heather Brunner, who's one of the best CEOs I've ever worked with, even though Jason is, was all, is one of the best entrepreneurs I've ever worked with. Um, and he is, he's held many roles since then. He's been the CTO. He's had engineering roles. He jumps into all kinds of stuff. He's super involved, um, and he's still the founder of the company. But he's not the CEO.
0: So what I, I lived uh, in Palo Alto on the street where all the venture capitalists were. And uh, so I had breakfast, lunch, and dinner with all of them for two years before starting the company. And what I learned from them is there were three reasons that companies fail. One is the uh, uncontrollable ego of the founder. One is a lack of money, that's self-serving advice. And the third thing is, um, do you want to run the company or do you want it to be successful? And so then when I went to raise money, I said, I am dedicated to having a successful company, even if I don't run it, I said to them. And they loved that, they ate it up. And uh, I'm here to raise money, so I'm not gonna have that problem. And oh, I'm sorry, I missed missed one. Focus, lack of focus. Uh, That was probably our biggest problem. So focus, lack of money, uncontrollable ego of the founder who wants to run everything. Those are poison. So I I turn those around and I put them in my presentation. and and So that's a general rule. When there's some objection to your proposition, you should be the one who introduces it. Don't let them introduce it. So rather than have them ask me, well, do you want to run the company? No, I beat them to the punch and I put it on a slide. And and, uh, eventually it happened. I mean, eventually we recruited Bill. Uh, for a while there, I thought Bill was going to be president and chief operating officer, and I was going to be chairman and chief executive officer. That lasted one year, and then suddenly I became VP of sales and marketing. Uh,
2: There's another version of that, that, sto- that saying, that story, which is, do you, do you want to be rich or king? What's more important to you?
0: So speaking of Steve Jobs, he's famous, right? Yes. CEO of Apple? Steve became CEO of Apple in 1996. He founded the company in 1976. He had adult supervision, Mike Markle is his name, from day zero. Steve Jobs believed in adult supervision and he had adult supervision. And then after 20 years, he comes back to his company as CEO. But it was only after 20 years of on-the-job training that that happened. Uh, from
3: when you got the inception of your idea, Ethernet, the Ethernet card, to when you knew it was going to become a company, what made you take the route of like not like bootstrapping the company initially and going straight to VC funding? And was there like a point of distinction that you just knew you needed to raise venture capital?
0: So we started out bootstrapping, consulting. Uh, we even sold a book for a while, and uh, we. Um, and then we got a $750,000 contract with Exxon to deliver four products: TCP/IP software, Ethernet cards, four of them. And the deal was they would give us $750, and we would give them these four products, including a worldwide perpetual non-exclusive license to do whatever they wanted with these four products. Um, And so when I went to raise money, by the way, the VC said, you idiot, you just sold your products to the world's largest company. They're gonna kill you. And I said, it's an oil company. They're never gonna sell these products. Don't worry about that. Fortunately, you only need, you don't need all the VCs to want to invest. I've got three of them to believe that story. And of course, Exxon never sold the products. But we were bootstrapping and then I started reading in the newspapers interviews of a guy named Ralph Ungerman who invented Ethernet and was the first one to uh, sell software that was internet related. That was me. He was lying. <laughs> he was taking credit for what he did. Including Kleiner Perkins, which is the monster. And so he was Accelerating into a window that was opening, the internet window was opening, and he was accelerating into it with using jet fuel VC. So that's when that's when I decided we had to we had to raise money too, and and eventually we passed him, and uh, and uh, he reached a miserable end.
3: Would you recommend as a young person moving to San Francisco to
1: jumpstart their startup career?
0: Well, that was the advice that. Uh, Zuckerberg was given. He was at Harvard. He had Facebook, and he got it. Ad- I'm forgetting the guy's name who gave him the advice. It was. Sean Parker. Yes. Say it again. Sean Parker. Sean Parker said, if "You have a software move to Palo Alto." So Mark up and went, got rented some space, Avenue in Palo Alto, and boom. So the lesson there is there are. Uh, You want to be surrounded by people, resources you can recruit to your company and customers you can sell to. And so in the case of Facebook, the answer was Palo Alto. Palo Alto may not be the answer for you. It depends what company you're starting. Oh, data, data, data. Uh, uh, Benioff. I met Benioff when I was selling ads for InfoWorld. Mark Benioff from Salesforce. Everyone knows that.
2: I'm just saying. Just help
0: <laughs> So I walk in. I'm selling ads. Oracle is a huge customer. And I weaseled an appointment with Larry Ellison, the CEO founder, to sell him some ads. And I walk in, and there's this kid, Benioff. Benioff was the head of marketing or something. He was pissed because I had gone around him, and I was selling directly to the CEO of the company rather than to his agency or to his head of marketing. So I got, I got the order, and, and Benioff stood in horror as I got the order. Larry Ellison was writing ad copy at the end of that meeting, and uh, poor Mark. But see, Mark recovered from that defeat, and he founded Salesforce. And uh, so you're now going to recover from his defeat, and what's the name of your company? Data, data, data? Yeah, we'll go with that. Yeah, okay. Three data. Huh. I like that. I like company names beginning with three.
4: Um, So I'm a journalism major, and um, some people think that journalism is dying or it's not super profitable. And I was wondering what your perspective is on that since you worked in the industry and what you think the future of journalism looks like.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's a great thing to major in. And you're right, journalism is in complete disarray because the financial model has been destroyed. Uh, Advertising and journalism both got destroyed at the same time. And people are trying to rebuild uh, a monetization of journalism and a monetization of advertising that works for everybody. And so it's, but it's a great calling, journalism. I, I have the seventh floor of my building. And I was not allowed on that floor because I sold ads. And a principled principled publishing company in those days would never uh, mix advertising and journalism. The separation of church and state. So you're a state, so stay away from... No, you're a church, stay away from state. Uh, So I wrote a column, which is a weekly column, so I considered myself a journalist. But the news desk didn't. News people don't consider commentary people to be, journal, to be true journalists. So I, I had to live with that. Plus, I wasn't allowed on the seventh floor, which was terrible. But you're right, it's gonna be a, a tough slog.
1: So you talk a lot about Xerox Park. Can you tell us a little bit more about what happened there and its role in Silicon Valley?
0: Xerox uh, invented copiers and patented copiers and had a monopoly on copiers. And so it made a ton of money. And so they decided they wanted a research center, another one, and they chose to be near Stanford in Palo Alto. And they started the Xerox Palo Alto Research Center at which the personal computer was born. That's a highly controversial statement, but. So we managed to, so Ethernet the internet prior to uh, Park was dumb terminals connected to mainframes and around the time of and to some degree at Park the personal computer got invented and Ethernet is a personal computer network not a dumb terminal network and so we by building Ethernet we helped uh, personal computers um, blossom which they did and then um, and then Xerox famously fumbled, in fact, there's a book called that. Uh, what's it called? The word fumbles in it. Uh, and didn't exploit its developments as much as it should have. So Apple Computer, for example, did. Um, Apple and Microsoft both exploited the developments at Xerox Park. At one point, uh, Apple was selling It was suing Microsoft for stealing the technology that it had stolen from Xerox PARC. And we got to watch that happen. Um, So um, bitmap prior to Xerox PARC, the only thing you saw on your screen were green characters, mostly uppercase. And suddenly uh, bitmap displays came in with the uh, Alto, which is the name of the PC we did. And the Alto had a big bitmap display. And you could do pictures like cat pictures and dogs and anything you wanted, not just dumb terminal characters. So, so Park still exists, but it's a uh, it's it's limping around now.
2: What's it's the closest thing to Park
0: now? Closest thing to Park are the research centers of Google and Facebook. Yeah, only monopolies, in my opinion, is only monopolies can afford research. But it's not a good idea to have our research done by monopolies because they, once they develop something they're not very motivated to uh, pursue it because they're already a monopoly. Why would they bother? So I think uh, we should do our uh, research centers at universities. And the principal reason is universities graduate students and students are the vehicles for innovation. That is a two hour course. I just gave in three sentences right there. In other words, why research should be done at universities instead of monopoly labs.
4: Oh, um, I was just wondering if you have any hypotheses or predictions relating to like the healthcare or space industries. Just because like you've had a lot of accurate predictions in the past.
0: I'm not expert in that. Um, uh, healthcare is seriously broken, and. Uh, it's about to get fixed but I don't know how it's going to be fixed. I just It needs to be fixed. Um, and as for space, um, I have a Starlink in a box in my garage and I'm, it's going to be installed soon. Um, the reason it's not installed yet is it has to be up on the top of a roof and I have a rule I don't go on ladders. So I'm getting, trying to find somebody who will get on a ladder and put it up there. Uh, but space isn't a big market. There just aren't a lot of people out there, you know, buying stuff. Uh, <laughs> the Martian market is really limited. There's, you know, like one buyer, maybe two or maybe three. But So it's a special kind of marketplace. But what Elon did to space is just fabulous. Pre- completely broke it open and made it competitive and, and exciting and interesting. I love that he won. To, he, th- he expects to die on Mars, but he hopes not on impact. <laughs> Question um, for us
3: student founders: If we have like a good idea, w- would you ex- would you say recommend that we like learn how to execute that ourselves, or like would you recommend that like we try to find a co-founder or um, a different route? First thing you do is
0: find a co-founder. The first person you need to convince is yourself. Then you need to convince this co-founder, who, remember, as I said earlier, he's looking at you and you, you don't have a company. It's just you. I'm gonna, supposed to leave college and join you and you don't have anything. You don't have any money. And, uh, but if you can convince a co-founder to join you, you must be on to something. Um, I think the, the mistake mostly made by uh, undergraduate entrepreneurs is they don't look around enough. Uh, and so there's 20 other people doing exactly the same thing, only they haven't noticed. and they're, So they're not a good investment because they'll notice very shortly that there's 20 other companies in the field. So you've got to do your homework and be sure you have. I, I'd recommend that undergraduates not start companies. That they join startups and start theirs later, because it's uh, there's a lot to know.
2: What, Is that the what advice I, you give? Uh, I mean, I'm open to lots of different things, but um, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't tell someone don't start a company while you're in college if they're like onto something, and they got something, I'm like go for go for it, you know. But I wouldn't if, do
0: that. I, I feel but, responsible. But, if, you're, but if, you're,
2: if it's not like I've got some amazing thing I'm working on and I'm just, I know I just really am passionate about entrepreneurship and I want to do something, but I'm not sure what to go do, then yeah, one of the best ways you can get experience and build your key network, find your co-founders, is you go be part of a high-growth company. At those early stages, where it's going to rapidly go through a lot of different phases, you're going to see lots of different problems and and experience a lot of things. You're going to see lots of different people and see them perform and know who the good engineers were, the good marketers, the good people. Like he said, he knew who to go call when he was starting his company because he had maybe seen them, do, you know, do good stuff at other places. Um, and uh, and and you learn a lot about real world problems. Like that's part of how you learn. Like what. You might identify like what your company should be because you're working at a company and you not even relate necessarily related to that company but you just have this big problem in trying to do your job at that company and you're like Eureka this is the thing I got to go do because lots of companies have this problem so yeah I think being part of a, um, a high-growth team at a you know a great company that's growing really fast is a great thing to go do and very likely way to end up after that going and starting a company
0: so when I try to convince Undergraduates, not to start companies. They say Dell, Jobs, Zuckerberg, Microsoft. What? Microsoft, Gates. Uh, they rattle them off, and I say, Ethereum. name five more. And they can't name five more. So there are these grotesque exceptions to the rule. And they, they make it hard to take my position, the, the fact that they exist. But you know that's only five or 10 out of millions of uh, entrepreneurs, uh, and they all had adult supervision. Hello entrepreneurs and
1: everyone who loves them. Thanks for listening to this Startup Focus podcast. And if you want even more amazing startup content, The NAIC plans to attend South by Southwest 24, which runs March 8th through 15th here in Austin, Texas. Much of the amazing startup content occurs in the appropriately named Startup Track, which runs Saturday, March 9th through Monday, March 11th. Another can't miss experience is a South by Southwest pitch competition, which brings together 60 of the world's top startups on Saturday, March 9th and Sunday, March 10th. Via the Startup Track, South by Southwest pitch or any of the thousands and thousands of other events that make March magic in Austin so special, South by Southwest is one of the planet's top destinations to discover new ideas, new business models, new markets, new innovators, and new talent, as well as make some incredible new connections. Always find the most information about South by Southwest at www.sxsw.com.
0: So uh, here we are at 3Com, so we made a three node kit, three cards and a diskette. So you take your three IBM PCs, you put a card in each one, you run a cable among the three, then you load the software on the machines, and then you can do printer sharing. You put a printer on one of the PCs, and then all three of them can share it. And you can put a hard disk, hard disks were rare in those days, You could put it on one of the machines and share it among all three. Printer sharing, file sharing, and email. You could send or receive an email to anyone else on this three-node network. And we started selling it for three grand. And uh, a year later, our customers came back and said, this three-node network does exactly what you said it was going to do. It's just not useful. So not useful is not a good thing. For your products. So I made a slide. And the slide, and by the way, this is before PowerPoint. So this was literally a 35 millimeter slide showing that the cost of the network went up linearly with the number of my cards you bought. But the number of possible connections, which I said was the value of the network, goes up as the square of the number of nodes on the network. And so the reason that your, no, your network is not useful is that it's not big enough. What's the remedy to that? Buy more. Buy more of our products. (laughs) So we, uh, I remember I went to the store and I got six copies made of that slide because that's how big my sales force was. And I personally inserted that slide into each of their carousels. You know what a carousel is? I put the slide into the six carousels and out they went and told our customers and our customers believed them, and they bought more of our products, and we went public shortly thereafter. That was 1984. In 1995, a man named George Gilder saw that slide, and he said, I'm going to call that Metcalf's Law, and he did, and so I've been defending it ever since. Why not?
2: (laughs) Which is more broadly also known as the network effect, right? That the effect, the value of your network goes up by the square. Well, Metcalf's
0: law is a particular quantification of the networker.
2: It's the quantification. And there's
0: a, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. No, No, please. So I've had 20 some years, 30 some years, I forget how many professors and grad students quibbling with my law. It's not the square. It's two po- x end to the two point one, or you know some optimization like that. And nobody cares. Nobody cares. It's it, it's a vision thing. Yeah. You Things are more point. valuable when you connect them together. Or of me. magnitude type thing. Right.
3: Um, at the beginning of class, you said something that was really interesting. You were like, I don't really look at the market.
0: I, I I didn't hear that. I don't really you look said, at the market.
3: Oh, yes, I said oh, okay. that. You said uh, you don't really look at the market. Should I withdraw but? that? No, no, no. I was just I just wanted to like kind of pick at that. Um, considering you said that, um, nowadays everyone talks about AI. Everyone talks about tech. Um, pretty much anytime they want to kind of like blow up something, they're like they kind of slap AI onto it, and they're like, well, I have links to AI. Do you think that if at this point in time and. With how ventures have gone, do you think that if somebody isn't in AI or tech, that they can't really make one of those like Forbes top ten companies or like make it up into those those high ranking numbers?
0: Well, you've seen, you may have seen that multi billion dollar investments are being made today by Google, Microsoft, Amazon. They're all making those. Multi-billion dollar investments. So you better be, if you're going to start a company in that space, you better be careful. Uh, that Who's raising $20,000? I want to argue with you about that. $20,000, not $20 billion. So there's a different game being played there. And there are going to be some negative consequences. Some of those billion dollar investments are going to be worth nothing shortly. I don't know, but I don't know which one. By the way, the problem with 20,000, it's not small enough and it's not big enough. Yeah, 20,000, what is that? What what are you gonna do with that? So it should be more, or less. either you should find a way not to raise money, like secretly from friends, uh, family and friends, or you should raise more. But that seems like it's in an awkward especially when there's multi-billion dollar people wandering around. I loved your idea, by the way. But $20,000 does not seem like the right number. What do you think about that? I think, you
2: know, fundraising is milestone-based. Fundraising is milestone-based. And so it's really about what am I going to accomplish with this $20,000 or whatever that amount is that's going to suddenly make me worth more, able to raise more money at a higher valuation, be worth more money. And so, yeah, usually, you know, if you're just if you're doing running student competitions and they give out five grand grants and 10 grand grants then maybe 20 grand is the right number to be looking for right now um but that's for getting a student idea to a concept i'm raising money for a company um it's hard to imagine having any team of people working on something for any period of time for you know, it's it's hundreds of thousands of dollars as a minimum just just to make something happen to get anything to happen. Um, and in general, you want to be thinking about it again, very milestone based. We're raising this money to build our MVP and show that so we can show you what it is. Once we build our MVP, we're raising this next money to get ten customers using it and to have data from that that'll allow us to under you know understand you know that, you know who our market is better. We're raising this money to go uh, acquire you know, this many customers to get us to, you know, to prove we have market pr- product market fit or to get to pr- get to break even, you know, just like these kind of milestones are the, the
0: well, best. Well, you actually product. said that you wanted to raise the money to build out your, um, MVP. You said that, uh, engineers are paid what hundred grand a year. So how long would your 20 K last? Not enough time to do anything on your MVP. You see, it's it's an, it's just an awkward. Number. Anyway, what he said. Yeah. Fast,
4: yeah. um, I have a question about uh, earlier when you were saying you don't advise undergraduates to go into entrepreneurship right away. Let's say you have an undergraduate who's not going, starting something of their own, who's not going to work at uh, an early stage startup. Uh, let's say somebody going into uh, corporate America, but they are really committed to going down the entrepreneurship route a little later on, like five years later or something like that. What sort of advice do you have for them to maximize their success during their time uh, at their
0: job? Probably one of my sad moments as a professor, it's happened many times, but it's a sad moment. One of my students will come up at mid-semester and say, here's my letter from Google offering me a job. Should I take the job or should I keep working on my startup? That is such a hard question. And the uh, my pro, pro forma answer is uh, um, go work for Google. And uh, But you, you're looking for a more precise answer. Um, so the rule about associating with good people, you wanna be sure the team that you're gonna join is full of good people who know stuff and and, uh, and present a bright future because you're likely to end up networked with them and all of you will go to start the company. Your network will form within a branch of, in this case, Google.
2: i got a couple while you're Yeah, go ahead. So, um, one, just definitely in these situations, especially in an interviewing situation, don't be afraid for you to interview them you know, and for you to ask questions of them. And that is not going to, in most cases, there could be an exception every once in a while, but for most normal companies and normal people and normal cultures, that is not going to offend them. That is going to actually make them more attracted to you. They're going to like, oh, shit, this person's like, <laughs> they're, they're evaluating us. Like, they're asking good questions. Like, they must have options. They must, you know, like, that's going to make you look good. So one, it's okay to ask questions. And one of those great questions is to be like, who am I going to be working with? Like, who am I gonna get to spend time with? Who am I gonna learn from? Who am I gonna get exposed to? Because that's a really good question. And in a really big company, you know, there's lots of different jobs. And some of them you might just get stuck in a corner somewhere and like, not really get to do anything or talk to anybody. And some of them you might get to do a lot more. And it just depends on what you're trying to go do. Um, Also really dependent on the company and the culture. While you're there, don't let your title define what you think you can do or like, you don't wait for, to be given a title or for someone to tell you that you can go solve a problem or work on something or think about something. Again, the culture of the company matters. You have to be careful about stepping on people's toes and things like that. But in general, like stepping up and going and like doing something extra, solving some problem, getting involved in something that wasn't in your job description, and not asking them to pay you for it first, but just, like, just going and doing it is gonna really make you stand out and is gonna help you learn. And then the last part would be just, like, being asking lots of questions. Again, like, you know, some companies are more transparent than others. Um, if you are respectful about how you do it, like, you know, like, that's how you maximize what you learn. Ask questions, you know, like, you know, ask for a meeting with the CFO and ask them to, like, explain to you, you know, tell me about it. Explain to me how we decide how we do something like this or whatever. And, you know, again, and, you know, every once in a while, you'll be in a place where you'll get... You, 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 that won't be well received but most places that's going to make you look good
0: and, and I would add it. it should be fun yeah if it's not fun don't do it and the reasoning is very simple you can't be very good at anything unless it's fun because you won't be able to put up with it but if it's fun you stand a chance of being excellent and thereby successful We used to have a uh, company meeting, um, as I mentioned, every Friday at 10 o'clock. It was the whole company, and uh, Bill, my adult supervision, would run the meeting. He did a good job, and one day he invented a um, a uh, reward, a bonus system, where if somebody did something really extraordinary, they would get this award, and he called this award a cadu. So the at, at at these friday meetings he would give out kadoos. and we we were all when when the meeting was over said, what 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 is a kadoo, what is that and then we realized bill was mispronouncing kudo <laughs> but this went on forever we no one could break the news to him that he was mispronouncing kudo because he was the CEO of the company. So every Friday morning at 10 o'clock, we were all chuckled that Bill was giving out kados again. <laughs> anyway, we had fun, that was an example of fun.
1: What are your thoughts on like Sam Bankman-Fried and like the
4: FDX fiasco that's happened?
0: You want to know a secret? Tell me. Sam and I are fraternity brothers. He was a Sigma Nu, well, it was called Epsilon Theta. He was an Epsilon Theta at MIT. We lived in the same house at MIT. Of course, the Epsilon Theta house is working very hard to be sure no one knows this. (laughs) They don't want to be associated with Sam. Yeah, that's Porth. I could see how that happens step by step by step. Corruption is sort of an incremental thing. You get in deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. He's way deep, way, way deep, poor bastard. Uh, Well, he's going to spend a lot of time in jail, I figure.
4: So you predicted the future way back when. I guess my question is right now, I want to also predict the future. So what kind of things do you take as your paradigm for predicting that stuff and just coming up with that vision? It's like, how deep do you go in terms of like the pervading impacts of, say, a technology or a company or an idea or just the philosophy, right? It's like, where do you begin with yourself when you're predicting the future and how can I do the same?
0: Well, we read a lot. There's lots of analysts out there analyzing the future. There's lots of reports. You could get them. They're online. Yeah, but
2: when he talks about, he, he, it, he, part of when I hear him,
0: I heard you tell the story about, you know,
2: uh, how you saw, you saw the future at Xerox Park. It wasn't that he predicted it. It's that he surrounded himself with the people that were all thinking about the future. I he call it a time machine. Place.
0: Park was a time machine.
2: Right, and you, you can do that. that there, there are time machines at UT. There are labs and places where people are working on the future, right? And so it's not that you have to predict it, so much as like, find it, go surround yourself with it, and then you know, figure out the timing. When does that come back to the
4: world? I think I read on your Wikipedia that you also predicted that the internet would collapse in the 90s. And that, that was not correct. But I wanted to know why you predicted that and why it didn't end up happening.
0: Uh, so I, I mentioned I wrote a column every Thursday night. And uh, so every Thursday I had to decide what to write. And was it going to be right or was it going to be interesting? And uh, and I'm an engineer, so I had tools for analyzing the internet. And the World Wide Web was new, and we didn't know what was going to happen. But I'm noticing that the packet loss rate of the plumbing is hit past 25 percent, and TCP/IP, the plumbing protocol, is doesn't handle lost packets very well. So I developed a thesis that this sudden and surprising growth of the web was going to break TCPIP. It was already true that when you clicked on a web page, it took forever to render. Because everything, the 50 kilobit per second modems, and, and but lost packets, sometimes you'd click on a page and it would never render. It would just sit there dead because the packets were lost and the TCP IP recovery was uh, broken. So that was my basis for predicting that there was going to be a collapse at some point in, during 1996. And then I I made this at a conference and the audience was full of bloodthirsty webmasters. So they made me promise to eat my InfoWorld column if this collapse did not occur. And it did not occur. So I then went back to that conference, a thousand bloodthirsty webmasters, and I ate my column. And uh, I learned a lot. I learned, first of all, you can't eat paper. (laughs) Don't try it. It's, It's too hard. Uh, be sure the inks are not heavy metals. They should be uh, soybean inks. And uh, and audience, crowds, mobs are unforgiving. They would not forgive me. So I ate my column. I got more publicity for eating that column than I got for inventing ethers. <laughs> People love the idea that you would admit that you were wrong and actually make a big show of eating the column. They loved it. And so I got all sorts of... Uh, it was a PR stunt, basically. In retrospect, a PR stunt. Um, oh, and the reason it didn't break is that the there was there was not. Oh, I wrote a book called "Internet Collapses." You can still get it on the internet, which it apparently didn't collapse. <laughs> and so, uh, uh, yeah, "Internet Collapses."
2: Well, that, that, that might end? be a good story to, to end on. I'm sure you guys will have some more questions for him uh, after, uh, as well that you might ask one on one. But um, let's give Big Bob a big round of applause and thank him for coming <laughs> for this next time for us. Thank you.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of Austinpreneur. Awesome Don't forget to check out CapitalFactory.com to learn more about us and join our community. If you have thoughts about the show or ideas on how we can work together, reach out to me directly via email, nickspiller at CapitalFactory.com. Shout out to the Capital Factory Dream Team for making this podcast possible, and special thanks to Aaron Handworker who masterfully recorded and edited the show. Come back next week for a whole new episode.